A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talked to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the Labour leadership race, the latest from it, the Labour deputy leadership race, the latest from that and what's coming up in the Tories' first Queen's speech. Then I talked to Anusha Kalian and she gives us a live dramatic reading of the news that Tristram Hunt is not going to run the Labour leadership. Well, the Commons is back, the MPs are sworn or affirmed back in, and politics is restarting. And I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and our Staggers editor, Stephen Bush, to talk a little bit more about that. First of all, George, you've written in your column this week about the search for a new Labour leader and the fact that all the candidates so far have positioned themselves more in a more centrist way than Ed Miliband. Is that uh, a rediscovery of things that they kind of had to keep submerged during the campaign in order to fit in with everyone? Or is that the fact that it's a tactical thing, we lost the election? Mm. I think it's a combination of both. Um, Miliband was almost the most left-wing person in his shadow cabinet. Most of the leadership contenders uh, supported his brother over him in, in terms of preference. They always doubted that he could win a majority with a left-leaning strategy. Um, but it's also obviously a reaction to the fact that we now have a Tory majority. Uh, Labour did very badly in England. And so I think the left have found it hard to <clears throat> define the terms of debate because it wasn't just the SNP and the Greens that cost Labour the election, it was how badly they performed against the Tories. And for those reasons, I think whoever becomes leader, they will pursue a more centrist strategy than, than Miliband. And Stephen, you've written a little bit about, we've been talking a lot um, in the last kind of week or so about the unions, with Lem McCluskey making these kind of you know big blood-curdling interventions, both sort of saying that he thinks that Jim Murphy is rubbish and should go, and lo and behold he went, and, and also weighing into the Labour leadership race. Is the Parliamentary Labour Party now more left-wing than it was in 2010? Yes, um, albeit fractionally. Um, but crucially, the left-wing part of the Labour Party, one, you have a lot with... So Unite Back is quite a catch-all category, because if you were a SPAD or you worked in a think tank, you are quite likely to have been a member of Unite the Trade Union. So the overall number is, is bigger than it is, you know, it's smaller than it looks. Um but the interesting thing is the new left-wing intake is, um, dare I say, it, more more comradely than the, the, the left-wing intake which came before it. There is, I think, far less likely to be kind of the equivalent of the John McDonnell versus Diane Abbott stuff that was fairly typical of Labour's left flank. Uh, so for anybody who's not familiar with that, tell me what that was. Um, so when Diane Abbott, who was trying to run as the candidate of the left, uh, last time around in the leadership election, she really had to struggle to get the support of and couldn't get all of the other MPs from the left. Michael Meacher didn't back her. John McDonnell effectively had to be cajoled into it. There were a lot of um, there was an awful lot of bold men fighting over a comb uh, in the new Labour year. So this very small left flank of the parliamentary party, which couldn't stand each other for reasons which from the outside looked fairly obscure. Did in the end David Miliband lend her MPs to get her on the ballot? Yeah, uh, 
David Miliband was persuaded it would be good for diversity to have A, someone from the left, B, a woman, and C, someone from an ethnic minority. Um, that is un that's not going to happen this time, uh, partly because it is now an established wisdom within the Labour Party and that helped Ed Miliband. Uh, there are people who voted for Diane Abbott who probably wouldn't have been bothered to turn out for Ed who looked at the ballot and went, well, I'm not voting for the Blairite. And effectively, what you see is people voting Diane Abbott 1, Ed Balls 2, all the way down. So the second to, preferences or the third yeah. preferences or whatever got redistributed and that ended up working in Ed yeah. Miliband's favour. So it's not really in your interests to invite that type of candidate onto that, particularly because now, under the new system, the MPs can't game it. If they let a left-wing candidate out into the wild, you know, who knows what they might do. They could win. Uh, and so that's because MPs have lost their golden share, essentially. Yeah. So everybody at that point, you know, it becomes much e a more open fight between activists and supporters and, and members. Yeah, it is entirely a free-for-all once, once you're on the ballot, which I think will be quite interesting. Um, I feel every week now I harsh on Yvette Cooper, but um, Yvette is incredibly popular and well-liked among MPs, not least because she's actually... One on one is 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 quite warm. She's been incredibly helpful to other MPs who like her have uh, had children while they've been MPs because she was sort of a, a pathfinder in that regard. Uh, so she will get a lot of support from MPs, but she's not that interesting. She doesn't have a particularly big policy offer, all of which really matter to Labour activist voters. So I can easily see how she'll go from being first among uh, parliamentary nominations to a weak second or even third among the activists, which will be a, an interesting... So, George, the, the front-runner has really emerged as, as Andy Burnham. Um, I'm going to put to you what my dad said, on, in his, and he said explicit to me in the guise of a, a normal voter, which is that he's just Miliband, but with slightly more starey eyes. And I think the, the nicer version of that is he's just Miliband, but more attractive, or more with a Scouse accent, or, mm. you know, slightly warmer or more, friend, you know, more friendly. Is that going to become an increasingly big problem for Andy Burnham if people feel that what they need at this point is a big break and he doesn't look like a sufficiently big break. Yes, quite possibly. Um because it looks as if it's Labour hasn't learned lessons from its defeat, it's just continuity Miliband. Although having an having a more attractive leader isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's no, no. <laughs> it's a start. Yeah. Um voters are voters are superficial. Uh, you know, it was always a problem for Ed Miliband that people couldn't visualise him as Prime Minister. If they can visualise Andy Burnham as Prime Minister slightly more, then that's... that's but that no was the first thing. question, wasn't it, that Andrew Marr asked him when he was on the sofa last week, was it, you know, are you the continuity candidate? Yes. And he went, no, I'm the change candidate in the you know, like least impressive impression of Barack Obama anyone has ever done. But he has to say that, doesn't he? That is, that is, you can't say I'm the steady as she goes, you know, hand on the tiller candidate at all. Exactly. Um, but it's also interesting how he's positioned himself on, on the deficit, for instance, so he has said, yes, we should have been running a surplus before the crash. And even Yvette Cooper, who was the only candidate who was saying, who's explaining the economic factors behind the small deficits and has now come into line and said, well, yes, really, there should have been a surplus. And I think they've all recognised that, as Philip Gould, Tony Blair's strategist, used to put it, you need to concede and move on. It doesn't matter about the economic facts. It's a political reality that this is hurting your support. Uh, the Tories will have a few days of crowing, saying, yes, look, you've, you've accepted, you crashed the car, you've now admitted it. But actually then they lose one of their strongest attack lines, which, which is that Labour's in economic denial. And if Labour at the next election says, yes, Labour has spent too much in the past, but I'm going to make sure it doesn't again, they're in a much better position politically. And then um, we'll talk a little bit in a minute, George, about your interview with Tom Watson, who's one of the deputy leadership candidates. But first, um, Stephen, can you just talk us through the kind of runners and riders for that? 
Because it definitely there's Tom Watson, who is uh, the front runner by some distance, uh, who's running on a kind of I'm a good organizer, I'll get the party into shape. Caroline Flint, who is effectively running as the continuity Harriet Harmon. Uh, she's an excellent, almost bomb-proof television performer. Um, she's shown herself to be incredibly loyal to Ed Miliband, who she had very little in common politically with. Um, and she's good at sort of motivating and firing people up. If Labour want a like-for-like -like replacement, that's the one they'll go for. Stella Creasy, who's kind of running... Um, to be honest, I'm not actually entirely sure what the elevator pitch for Stella Creasy is. Um, I think probably it's sort of the idea that she's run campaigns like Loan Sharks and Online Abuse, that she can get a single issue and somehow sort of take that and make it become a, a Labour issue. But I agree with you. It was, I mean, she launched in the Sunday Mirror and I haven't seen a, a lot more from her since. Yeah. She is now picking up some... Yeah, so Dan Jarvis has come out for her. Um, she, she does now look like she will get on the ballot and... What her supporters are partly saying is that she is the the candidate, this is what they're saying to people in the PLP, she is the candidate who is more popular than Tom Watson among the membership. So it may come down between them and there. And the wild card is Angela Eagle, um, who is very well liked uh, among MPs and actually really well liked among members uh, on Merseyside, where she has uh, been a, a strong campaigner. We forget that Wallacey was once a uh, a marginal, and it is now a Labour fortress, partly because of what a hard worker she is. But she's effectively running for survival. Her political generation is almost certainly going to be cleared out by whoever the leader is. So a strong showing in the deputy leadership probably extends her own shelf life by a bit. And she's been quite effective in kind of procedural terms of, of, of doing things in Parliament, hasn't she? Yeah, she's, yeah, she's a, it, often it seems like saying someone's a good parliamentarian is a bit like saying someone has nice eyes, but she is genuinely a good parliamentarian, she's well liked in the House, she's a good operator. Um, she is actually someone who it would be a shame to lose in the kind of bonfire of the oldies. Mm. Um, and George, you, you interviewed Tom Watts, who, as we said, is the, is the front runner. He's been kind of crowdfunding his campaign. He's obviously um, got one of the higher profiles of people in the, who are outside the, the ministerial ranks from his work, well, I was going to say against News International, but, you know, generally over hacking. You talked to him this week and, and, and he did say, you know, we're going to have to rebuild relations with the press. Has he got too much baggage in order to be the clean break that people need? Is that going to come and, and is that something that people are going to hold against him? Yes, there certainly will be people who do. And uh, it, it does put him in a difficult position in some ways if he's saying we need better relations with the press because it's, it's hard to when think of anyone. When Rupert Murdoch actually hates, yes. personally hates him. Um, yeah. But his pitch is that he's a strong campaigner. He would be a Prescott-like figure. And I think there are some people who feel that there are benefits to having someone like that who is in touch with, with the activists and who can bang heads together and and uh, I think it's harder though if, if Andy Burnham wins because you could see why for instance uh, Chukwamuna Tom Watson combination offers you different That gives uh, you a qualities. Blair Prescott doesn't it? You have yes. a very kind of smooth telegenic leader and then you have a kind of fixer behind the scenes who you feel you know was actually going to kind of shake the stick and kind of put fear of God into people. Um, and the other thing I'm interested in is this idea about having a kind of interim leader mm. so the Guardian have, have floated this idea it's been kicking around it seems to be born out of the fact that everybody thinks the fixed-term parliaments act mean that five years is a really long time. What Labour needs in 2015 is not necessarily what's going to need in 2020. But, George, do you think anyone will want the job on a kind of fixed-term contract? No, I don't think they do. And, and Alan Johnson is the name that's always mentioned, and he has made it clear unequivocally that he doesn't want it. I don't think he's going to be persuaded to change his mind. 
Uh, but Labour is in a very difficult position. Uh, five years is a long time. Um, and of course, they're going to be facing a new Tory leader at the next election. And, and they're different candidates who would be right for different opponents. Um, and then, of course, there's also this idea of having a break clause so that the leader needs to be submitted, needs, needs to submit themselves to a, to a reaffirmation vote. Uh, the danger of that is you essentially set a timetable for a Labour le- leadership crisis in the middle of the parliament. I like the idea of scheduling a leadership crisis, but equally well, I mean, you know, there, everyone is now kind of being slightly wise after the event and saying, well, actually, maybe, you know, we, when, when the polls looked so bad for Ed Miliband, maybe we should have reappraised him and we should have kicked him to the curb. But effectively, that that was never going to happen given the, the, how hard it is to depose a Labour leader. It it won't, it wouldn't, unless things change, it won't happen again, will it? Unless somebody is, you know, 19 points behind. Yes. Uh, though I think um, there will be people perhaps who panic if they're not early results against the Tories. And that, that would be a mistake too, because what happened last time is midterm Labour had double digit poll leads and people became complacent. This time, if Labour don't move ahead of the Tories in the polls by midterm, people might start to panic when actually... If you're following a consistent strategy, then it it will take time to work, given the negative impressions that people have of Labour. But I think the whole process is being far too rushed at the moment. I mean, it it does seem very odd that so many MPs have committed themselves when none of the candidates have outlined anything like a comprehensive programme. And you really need to decide on on the analysis and on the strategy first and then pick a candidate. It feels as if Labour's doing it the, the wrong way around at the moment. Mm, I think that's I think yeah, I think that's that's very fair. And actually if you look at the history of how Cameron was selected, for example, you know, Michael Howard carrying on Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On and, and then actually kind of giving people a chance to. Clearly, Ed Miliband looked quite happy as he was sworn in, although I hear that he, he looked slightly less happy yesterday in Parliament. So, but, but clearly very difficult situation for both him and Nick Clegg, particularly Nick Clegg when there are so few Lib Dems around to try when they're trying to look for people in their party. Do you think, Stephen, that either of them will do an IDS and, and end up taking a kind of senior role within the party and, and hanging around? Um... I mean, with Nick Clegg, it's sort of inevitable that he'll end up taking some form of senior role. There aren't really enough Liberal Democrats left. You might have to take three or four senior yeah, roles. For there not to be some senior roles going around. Uh, and I suspect, sadly in a way, that Nick Clegg's stock will probably go up a bit in this new Lib Dem free Conservative government era than Why is that? I think, I mean, I, is that sad? I mean, I think in a way he did, a, he did a sort of noble... I think it's quite sad self-sacrifice. because I think the reasons why it will happen in the same way... that So the Labour Party as a whole has not gone, oh, Tony Blair wasn't that bad. But you ask the average person what they think of that time in, gov- in government and they're quite positive about it. One of the reasons why they're quite positive about it is what's happened afterwards has not been that great. Mm. And so in some ways it would be better if uh, people went, oh, the Tories are perfectly moderate and fine, the Lib Dems did nothing. I suspect them they won't. With Ed Miliband, I mean, yeah, he wasn't actually that great of a minister from a kind of effectiveness point of view. He couldn't make decisions. This is a climate change. Uh, climate change. He couldn't make decisions. Yeah, he, yeah he, he had, a, from a PR perspective, he had a very good Copenhagen. From a policy perspective... 
didn't. Um, this is the Copenhagen Climate Change Summit. Yeah, climate, I just yeah. I like the host. He had a good Copenhagen. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if nothing else, we can always say that about him. Yeah, I, I, he would, you know, I think, to be honest, be a fairly disastrous minister. The flip side of that is IDS is a fairly disastrous minister. Uh, and, you know, he's still standing. The difference, though, is IDS does have a following on the right of the Conservative Party within Parliament, which mm. means he's worth appeasing. Ed Miliband... Was you're right, he doesn't have a following on, on the left, even within... You know, I mean, yeah. the, the people who I think would define themselves on the left of the Labour Party don't define themselves as Millibandites. They're not going to be sort of sitting there, you no, know, exactly. thinking that the prince over the water. Um, which brings us neatly on, George, to finish with um, what's coming up in the in the Queen's speech. I think um, perhaps we've generally, the media, slightly under-scrutinised it because we've been mm. so interested in the future of the Labour Party and, and to a lesser extent the Lib Dems. Um, Theresa May was out yesterday brutalising the police federation, telling them that they always cried wolf and they just complained uh, and, and, and actually crime rates were going down. There does seem to be like it's going to be quite a combative Queen's speech. Um, do you see any you know, landmines ahead for the Conservative Party or do you think they are just going to get a lot of very right-wing meat policy through? Mm. Well, I think they will get obviously their big items through such as the, the EU referendum bill um, I think Labour will basically accept, yes, this is happening now and, and we've got to just get on board and, mm. and, and let the debate begin. Uh, the abolition of the Human Rights Act will be more troublesome because you have got a, a number of Tory rebels, who are, such as David Davis, who are committed to um, to the traditional uh, civil liberties. And, and, and Plus, the... lawyers are very sharp-elbowed middle-class people generally and quite good at organising resistance in the way that perhaps you know benefit claimants don't get you know, the op-eds in the Times. So yeah, I think that one will be really interesting. Plus you put Michael Gove in charge of it, which is basically you turned it into a kind of bloodbath. You know, it's not going to be, I said this before, but you know, it's not going to be Theresa May quietly putting a pillow over its face and snapping out, is it? Um, Stephen, you look like you were about to suggest another piece of, of scary right-wingery coming down the, the slipway. I mean, I think the, the, the law to ban tax rises, which they've promised, is... I haven't yeah. heard a lot about that recently. Yeah, you kind of wonder. I mean, I'm intrigued by what they're going to do in this budget because they have so many things which were clearly negotiating positions with the Liberal Democrats and the DUP. They no longer have to negotiate with those two groups. But considering the likelihood of a Greek exit from the EU, considering the economy probably will have some form of downturn, are they really going to legislate themselves out of any tax rises? They probably have to. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm genuinely fascinated to know how they're going to get out of the fiscal mess that they've kind of promised themselves. Into. I guess that the best thing, to, I mean, would to do would be say, well, actually, that was something that we were going to do because we were, thought we might be in a coalition. Now we are, as everyone said at the time, we are now totally in charge of what tax rises there are going to be, so we won't do any. And then in four years' time, if you need to do tax rises, you kind of go, oh, funny story, Brexit though. Mm, what can you do about it? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that would be a that would be a cynic's view. Yeah, they could just revise up growth forecasts and go, oh, well, we're now predicting growth will be so large that we don't need this uh, kind of debt roller coaster. Well, the problem is they can't, of course, now because of the creation of the OBR. So that was uh, precisely to stop them massaging the figures. Mm. I mean, that, so in that sense, I mean, George Osborne could be forgiven for wishing he'd never set up the OBR, given that first they lumbered uh, him with the 1930s line, that so you're taking public spending back to its lowest share since the Great Depression. And now he's got, as Stephen said, uh, this fiscal roller coaster. 
Um, and the big question with the cuts. Which... So just to explain the fiscal roller coaster, because I keep saying it because I really love the phrase fiscal roller coaster. But this is the idea that you cut you the deficit. What hang on, you make very deep cuts, yes. and then and then as you come back out towards the end, next Parliament, then things begin to ease up. Is it? It's it's about spending cuts. Right? That's right. So Osborne in uh, the last um, autumn statement introduced um, a splurge. So his last budget mm. corrected the error in his autumn statement, the 1930s problem by uh, penciling in a spending splurge at the end of this parliament mm. um, in order to ensure spending was a little higher. Um, so that may, be, that may be flattened out now. But the big question with the cuts, I think, is, is it, will there be a tipping point? Will there come a point at which actually people do revolt against uh, the quality of public services and, and councils are going to be hit especially hard? I think that's fascinating because I think lots of people, particularly on the left, expected that this would become, there would be a poll tax moment at some point. People yeah. would, and, that, and that never came. And actually some of the Tories I've spoken to have been slightly smug about that. Um, but as you say, ca- local councils, I think, particularly Tory-led councils, feel quite stitched up about this because they know that people won't hold the government responsible. They will think their local mm. council is rubbish, but they can only do what they can with the money that, that they've got. Um, okay, well, we'll be we'll be back. Uh, maybe we'll do a special, you know, um, for around that next week. But for now, I'll say thank you very much to George and Stephen. Well, now, in a first for the New Statesman podcast, we've decided to do a live dramatic reading of one of Anusha Kalian's blogs from earlier in the week when Tristram Hunt decided that he would not stand for the Labour leadership. Uh, We are recording this in front of what we term a live studio audience. In fact, means four unwilling people drafted in. But uh, I will be playing the part of of Tristram Hunt in this, and Anusha will be playing the part of uh, of Anusha. So take it away, Anusha. Okay. This is a uh, dispatch from the front line of of Tristram Hunt's non-leadership bid speech that he made to the Demos think tank. The headline is Tristram Hunt's non-leadership bid feet Eric Hobsbawm, the Potters of Stoke and Brian Cox and a whole lot of impatient journalists. As Tristram Hunt stands up to speak at the think tank Demos, where he interned, by the way, in those giddy pre-1997 days. You remember 97, Labour landslide, with that song called Things Can Only Get Better, which is by D-Ream. And did you know Brian Cox was in D-Ream? That scientist one who's always on telly. Yeah, him. He was the keyboard player. The gathered press pack is impatiently awaiting a very big announcement. The last potential Labour leadership candidate who hadn't yet declared his ambitions, Hunt is giving a speech... Dedicated in no small part to explaining how things can also get even worse. Get it? Because it's a contrast with the song, which goes, Things can only get better, can only get, can only get. And it carries on like that for a little while. But the verses have different lyrics. Anyway, I digress. He's all prepared to give a searing analysis of his party's failings and to declare his leadership bid. Or not to declare his leadership bid. But enough about Tristram, for goodness sake. What about his great aunt Peggy Jay, eh? She was a Labour councillor on the London County Council. Did you know that? And her husband, called Douglas, was Labour MP for Battersea. No, Labour doesn't have that one anymore. And it doesn't have Stevenage. Or Harlow. Or Swindon. Thank God for Slough. Sighs Tristram. Though, of course, he learnt more about politics from Chicago's South Side. Or was it Stoke-on-Trent Central? Anyway... It was the poverty he saw that radicalised him. What he saw outside of the Ivory Tower. The Ivory Tower is that place where people lived called Milton Friedman, George Stigler, Gary Becker, Ed Miliband and Eric Hobsbawm. 
Tristram loves Eric. In fact, he reread his 1983 essay, Labour's Lost Millions, recently. A far better pastime than ringing round the entire Parliamentary Labour Party all the time. Anyway, Hobsbawm wrote, Unless Labour can once again become the party of the majority of the working class, it has no future, except as a wave of muttering from the assembled reporters. BBC Breaking News is reporting that Hunt won't be standing for the leadership and is endorsing Liz Kendall. But do pay attention. A coalition of minority pressure groups and interests, yet there is only a modest future for a party which represents only such groups and social forces on the decline, wrote Hobsbawm. The journalists Fidget and Russell. Sky News is also reporting that Hunt will not be running. Interesting you should mention Sky, actually, for it was under that very blue expanse that progressives built a vibrant civic democracy, confronted vested interests, and created the great age of Victorian and Edwardian civic pride. Just look at Stoke. The pits and the pods, the politicos and the pundits, prospect and progress, the pressurised public purse. Let's be blunt, says Tristram. There is no quick fix. As the media begins to wonder whether there is a man imitating Tristram, Zach Goldsmith maybe, giving interviews elsewhere about his lack of leadership ambitions, he gets to the point. It is a leadership that prioritises the organisational change the party desperately needs, transforming our industrial model of party management born of the 1890s, into something that resembles the modern world, more digital, embedded in civic society, and better funded. The way around, Tristram! And it is a leadership hungry to project an optimistic future vision of Britain, confident about its ability to manage the challenges of mechanisation, globalisation, climate change, and an ageing society. Are you hungry to project that vision? The way in which Labour leader is chosen needs to reflect the seriousness of the crisis in which our party finds itself. We need a debate that is open, vigorous, iconoclastic, fraternal and sisterly. The sound of stories being written up straight from the BBC copy echoes around the conference room. We need more of the demos, the individual members, supporters and affiliated supporters who make up our party. And we need less dictation by individuals and individual factions that still seek to wield an influence that is both disproportionate to what they deserve and contrary to the egalitarian principle of one member, one vote. Journalists eye the exit. I want party members, registered supporters and affiliated supporters from the trade unions to have an effective choice about Labour's future. And that is why this morning I am announcing that I will not be entering the race to be leader of the Labour Party. No quick fix, indeed. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. And now for a section we like to call Stephen Bush's Joke of the Week. So my Joke of the Week, this is a, this is a good one. So the phone hacking trial has reached its settlement, right? And um, Paul Gascoigne, the, uh, the famous footballer known as Gazza, um, has uh, been... Uh, given damages of 160k but if he had lost an arm he would have been given damages of 106k that's right the hacking charge the hacking trial charges literally cost an arm and a leg thank you <laughs>